Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. And I recently ran across something fascinating about one of my favorite restaurants, Outback Steakhouse. When Outback started in February of 1988, none of the four original founders of the restaurant had ever been to Australia. (laughs) Now you may say, well, what's the problem with that? Lots of people never been to Australia. Well, Outback is a totally Australian themed restaurant. Maybe it would help if somebody went to that country and checked it out, right? I don't know. Apparently, the founders of Outback were just trying to ride the wave of the enormously popular Crocodile Dundee movies that came out in the late 1980s because Mick Crocodile Dundee made all things Australian sound cool, like throwing some shrimp on the Barbie and taking a walkabout. But the reality is Outback's no more authentic Australian than Taco Bell's authentic Mexican. And I guess that caught my interest because we're attempting uh, to do something that we've never done in the history of Journey Christian Church right now. Both myself and Pastor Dustin Agard are asking you to follow us to places neither of us have ever been before. As we come closer to the completion of the lead pastor succession plan at the end of this year, I will be stepping aside from a role that I've been in at Journey for 12 and a half years now and for a total of 42 years combined as a lead pastor. And Pastor Dustin, yep, thank you. And Pastor Dustin is stepping into a position he has never been in before as our next lead pastor. And that can sound a little scary to everyone involved. But I've got some really good news to share with you today that I just want to say right at the top of this message. And here it is. God is in the business of calling people to go places they've never been before and attempt things they've never done before. He really is. You see, I checked this out in my Bible. And here's what I discovered. He called Abraham and Sarah to start doing some family planning when most people their age are doing funeral planning. He called Noah to build a boat when he'd never seen rain. He called Moses to lead an enslaved nation to freedom. He called Joshua to lead a freed nation to possess a land that wasn't theirs. He called David to take a rock to a sword fight. He called the Hebrew prophets to take unpopular stands against their own nation. He called his fishermen apostles to go fish for people instead of fish. And he called a rabbi named Paul to leave behind his pride in his Jewish ancestry to go take a pounding trying to win Gentiles to Jesus. You see, God is constantly calling people to follow him to places they've never been before and to attempt things they've never done before. This is one of the major storylines of scripture. And the best thing that we can do to be ready for what God has for us next is to prepare ourselves. And that's why uh, we kicked off a new series last week called Prepare the Way. And Prepare the Way is not only a new series of messages for the month of October, but it is also a mission-critical initiative through the rest of this year. And my hope and prayer 
is that God would use, prepare the way over the next 90 days to place Journey in the healthiest position possible for our upcoming lead pastor transition. John Maxwell said these profound words, achievement comes to someone when he's able to do great things for himself. Success comes when he empowers followers to do great things with him. Significance comes when he develops leaders to do great things for him, but a legacy is created only when a person puts his organization into the position to do great things without him. And I truly believe Journey's best days of ministry are ahead in the coming months and years. But that doesn't happen accidentally or coincidentally. We have to be intentional about preparing ourselves for such a major transition. That's why we devoted two messages just to the topic of succession back in May of this year. And we have an entire web page journeychristian.com slash transition that you can check out. It's filled with articles and videos and answers to frequently asked questions and other things that are related to our lead pastor transition. You see, in, in many ways, at Journey right now, in the immortal words of Carly Simon, these are the good old days. We are seeing God do some amazing things in so many areas of our ministry, some of which I want to talk with you specifically about next Sunday. However, there is one area I would like to challenge us to step up in over the next 90 days that is at the heart of the Prepare the Way Challenge. A few weeks ago, you heard Pastor Dustin boldly announce the vision the vision that he believes God's put on his heart to pray for for the next three years. And as you leave today, or maybe as you came in, you should get a, a postcard that has a lot of those elements of that vision laid out. Today, and for the next few weeks, I want to lovingly appeal for the provision. I want to lovingly appeal for the provision. And a church in the deep south, where the preaching style was kind of a talk back sort of style. The pastor was getting the congregation excited about his vision for the future. And the pastor said, this church is like a crippled man who needs to get up and walk under the power of Jesus. And the congregation enthusiastically replied, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. And then the preacher said, this church, like Elijah on Mount Carmel, has got to get up and run. And the congregation replied with a growing energy, let it run, preacher, let it run. Then the preacher said with more of, this church has got to mount on wings like eagles and fly. And the congregation replied with their loudest response yet, let it fly, preacher, let it fly. And then the preacher added, now if this church is going to fly, it's going to take money. <laughs> Silence. <laughs> then one man in the back with a noticeable lack of enthusiasm, said, let it walk, preacher, let it walk. <laughs> I have learned that the difference between a vision that soars and one that sinks often comes down to how well it is funded. Paul once wrote these fabulous words to the church in the ancient city of Corinth that really so describes how I feel about journey. Paul wrote, but since you excel in everything... And I see that in so many ways in our ministry. Since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we've kindled in you, 
see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Paul is lovingly challenging a congregation that he helped plant, nurture, and grow to sustainable health, to excel in the grace of giving. The word excel can also be translated abundance. It speaks to the idea of not just barely hanging on or scraping by, but of having some surplus, having some margin. Excelling is not just about surviving, it's about thriving. And if I want anything for Pastor Dustin and Journey in the future, it is that. I want Journey to excel in every area of ministry. So to help us excel in this grace of giving, particularly when it comes to a season of succession, I want us to look at one of the greatest succession stories, leadership succession stories in the Bible. It's found in the last chapter of the book of First Chronicles in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open it to that. First Chronicles 29, I'll give you some context. The story takes place when David, the king of Israel, is coming to the end of his time as the king of Israel. His son Solomon has already been named his successor, and David wants to do everything he can to set him up for success. And if you know the story of David, you know that he started out as a simple shepherd boy. He wasn't born into royalty. He probably didn't have much. I mean, he had a slingshot, and he had a harp, and he had a few sheep, not much else. That's how his story started. But now he's king over Israel in an era when they experienced unprecedented prosperity and expansion. I mean, the Israeli economic charts have been up and to the right for some time. And you know what that means? That means David, as their king, has now accumulated a lot of stuff. And one day he gets to thinking about how he lives in a big house made of marble and gold and with cedar-lined closets. But there's not really any appropriate place in Israel where people can worship or can gather to worship God. And God's presence among the Israelite nation is represented by what is known as the Ark of the Covenant. And that's just a kind of an image of what the Ark of the Covenant may have looked like. It, it was basically a four-foot by two-and-a-half-foot ornately decorated box that contained a few reminders of what it means to be God's covenant people. For example, they had a jar of manna that God provided during their wilderness wandering in there. The actual tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them that God gave to Moses, they were in that box, which is pretty cool. The staff of Moses' brother Aaron that represented the Levites were the God-appointed priestly line in Israel. That was in there. And they stored this Ark of the Covenant in an elaborate custom-designed tent that they called the tabernacle. And so one day, David gets to thinking about how from his perspective, he's living in an extravagant palace made of stone, and God's living in a box in a glorified tent. And he's convicted by the contrast of that. And so he gets an idea. He thinks, what if I were to build a temple where people would walk in and say, wow, not because they were impressed with any human being, but because it would be a place where they could be reminded of the goodness and the greatness and the closeness of this God who delivers people from slavery, who cares for their needs even when they're in the wilderness, and who guides them through his laws. The desire that David has to do this is pure. However, the answer that God gives him is perplexing. David prays. And he says, God, I'd like to build you a house. To which God politely but firmly said, no thank you, David. No thank you. You've been a warrior your whole life. You've shed too much blood. 
You've led too violent a life to build a temple of worship for me. No, you can't do that. Your son Solomon can, but not you. That raises a very important point. Here it is. God uses different leaders to accomplish different assignments. David had a really vitally important role in the life of Israel. If you were to go to the land of Israel today, you'd see a lot about David. But so did Solomon, his son. Both were used by God in their generation for a particular season to accomplish different assignments, but for the same purpose, the glory of God. You see, listen, the personality of every leader is unique, but none are irreplaceable. Only the presence of God is indispensable. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives a great summary of how both of these realities came together in the life of David. This is from Acts chapter 13. Paul said, David carried out God's purpose while he lived, then he died. By the way, if that could be said about every one of us, what a great life we would have lived, right? David carried out God's purpose while he lived, then he died. He was buried with his people. Back to the story in 1 Chronicles 29. I don't know. I don't know how you respond when God tells you no. But we can see how David responded. And it is an extraordinary response. David accepts God's no, and then he says, maybe I can't lead the way in building the temple of God, but I can lead the way in giving. I could do the capital campaign for building the temple. I could raise the money that Solomon will need. You see, David was called a man after God's own heart, and if you have a heart for God, it's going to be expressed in giving. Now, you can give and not have a heart for God, but you can't have a heart for God without giving. And so David gives massive resources to a project, to fund a project he will never lead, to build a temple in which he will never worship, to prepare for an administration he will never rule. And he gets so excited about this idea. He calls all the people together and he tells them what he's been up to. Then King David said to the whole assembly, my son Solomon, the one whom God has chosen is young and inexperienced, let's stop right there. David is naming one of the major but often unspoken fears people have in a season of succession. And here it is. We're losing an experienced leader that we've come to trust and getting someone younger who's never done this before. And if you have a concern like that, about the transition between myself and Pastor Dustin. I totally understand. And truthfully, images like this. <laughs> that probably doesn't bring you a lot of comfort. This is, this is from Pastor Dustin's last message in September. And listen, this is actually one of the best illustrations of the stages of spiritual development that I've ever seen. And if you haven't seen that message, I'm serious. You got to look at that message. It was outstanding. That kind of bothers me too, by the way. I just want to say that. But a change in leadership from a tested and experienced leader to a younger learning on the job leader is real. And it can be more than a little disconcerting. So it's okay to acknowledge that. But listen, let's don't let that stop us. 
Just because something's never been done before doesn't mean it shouldn't be done. Just because change is hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So David continues. The task is great because this palatial structure is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now that's important to note because it tells us that David wasn't seeking for his son to build a monument to him. He was preparing the way for Solomon to erect a worship and ministry center that would magnify what God has accomplished for his people. And so David says, with all my resources, I have provided for the temple of God, gold for the gold, silver for the silver, bronze for the bronze, iron, wood, alabaster, turquoise, stone, and marble. The phrase there, by the way, with all my resources is sometimes translated with all my abilities. In other words, not only has David not been sulking and pouting after being told by God that he couldn't build the temple, no, he's been thinking about how can I maximize all of my abilities and resources to give to God? How can I max out my ability to give to God? That's what he's been thinking about at night. And that's rare for anyone to be thinking like that, but that's especially rare for an ancient king, as we'll see here in just a moment. And he makes it clear that he's not just given from the national treasury that he controls as king. I mean, he's not just telling the treasury department to print more money. He goes on to say to the people, besides in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver. In other words, David says, this come now my own wallet. This isn't on the company expense account. This is from my personal funds. Then in verse five, he issues a challenge, and it's quite striking given the way that life worked in the ancient world. David says, now, who is willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? In other words, who would be willing to give like this? I want to point out, again, how unusual that would have been for an ancient king to make a request like this. For example, in ancient Egypt, the Pharaoh never said, who of you are willing to offer yourselves to help build the pyramids? You know what the ancient Egyptian Pharaohs did? He said, you, you're willing, and you, you're willing, and you, you're willing. In fact, all of you are willing. You see, the people didn't volunteer. They were voluntold. <laughs> you see, in those days, if you were the king, you didn't ask for what you needed. You just took whatever you wanted. But David doesn't take. He asks. Now, who's willing to consecrate himself to the Lord? David understands something very important, and here it is. God's plan for his community is that it should be a community of the willing. God's plan for his community is that it should be a community of the willing. He recognizes that giving any of your precious financial resources away only means something if it's given with a willing heart. See, great giving is the greatest indicator of where your heart is. And by the way, I didn't come up with that. Jesus did. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This is a vulnerable moment because David could have been the only one to give. I mean, there could have been a long silence when he asked, who's willing to give? Crickets, or maybe someone would have said, let her walk, king, let her walk. 
But then somebody steps forward and says, I'll give. And somebody else, and somebody else. And look at verse 6. The leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of the Israelites, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. You see, suddenly there's like an explosion of generosity on the part of other leaders in the kingdom. Why? Leaders lead. Leaders go first. Leaders aren't the exception. They're the example. And I'd like you to notice the wording that's used to describe the spirit in which the leaders give because the spirit ripples out to the wider community. The people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had given not just because the king made them give, they'd given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord and David the king also rejoiced greatly. Now later on in the chapter, David describes the process like this in his prayer to God. He says, all these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people here have given to you. Oh Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever. What's the words that describe their giving spirit? Willingly, freely, wholeheartedly. The people following David actually wanted to do this. I, I think it was probably something like this that Paul had in mind when he wrote to the church at Corinth about an offering he was asking them to give. Paul said this, give what you've decided in your hearts to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You're not being forced to, for God loves a cheerful giver. And that's what we see in this story in 1 Chronicles 29. There's an explosion of generosity that unleashes all this joy. The people rejoice, the leaders rejoice, King David rejoices, why? Well, here's the key perspective, and this is the core of the core of our learning this morning. Here it is. They understood the difference between stewardship and ownership, which was revealed in their prayers. They understood the difference between stewardship and ownership, which is revealed in their prayers. So in verses 10 through 20 of 1 Chronicles 29, David prays one of the most moving and significant prayers, in my opinion, recorded in all of the books of the Bible. It is as remarkable in its humility and vulnerability as it is spectacular in its majesty and immortality. So let's look at it. David starts, verse 10, praise be to you, O Lord God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. How much belongs to God? Everything. Let's read that line together out loud again. Here we go. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. You see, to understand anything about money from a kingdom perspective, you got to start right here. The consistent voice of the scripture writers makes it clear throughout every biblical book where it is addressed that God has the absolute right to all things because he's the creator, he's the sustainer, and he's the redeemer of all things. I want you to listen to what David wrote in Psalms 24. This is again, David, the earth is the Lord's and what? everything in it, the world and all who live in. Listen to Moses in Deuteronomy. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and what? Everything in it. Most of all, listen to God when he said this to his suffering servant Job. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Read that word. Everything under heaven belongs to me. I want to show you a, a passage from Psalm 50 that makes a particularly powerful point on this matter. This is God speaking. Take a look at this. 
God said, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird in the mountains. And the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine. And all that is in it. You see a frequent word that comes out of the mouth of little kids and is a recurring mindset of adults is the word mine. Little kids say it out loud. Adults may not speak it out loud, but we think it a lot. Mine. But God is the only one who can rightfully say about anything and everything, mine. God owns it all. And until we get this rightful mindset, we'll never understand joyful giving. And so to drive this point home, David continues his fabulous prayer by saying some specific things about the ownership of God. Look at this. Yours is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. You know what David's really saying here? He's saying, I want to make sure as I exit the national scene of Israel that people know I'm promoting your forever glory and not protecting my fading glory. David says, I am promoting God's forever glory. I'm not trying to protect my fading glory. And I can tell you this, as a leader comes to the end of their time as a leader in that organization, you tend to think a lot about what you've done and what you haven't done and what you should have done. And there's a tendency to have a protectionist or even a revisionist mindset that wants to manage people's impressions of how they will remember you, of how you led, of how good things were when you were in charge. And you begin to think more about your legacy than God's glory. So to guard against that, David takes this posture in prayer. And seven times he repeats the word yours or you. Look at this passage again. David is saying, yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. David wants to be clear. He's promoting God's forever glory, and he's not protecting his fading glory. And I love the next sentence in David's prayer. This is one of the great sentences about giving, in my view, in all the Bible. I want you to look at what David says. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? That reveals David's heart as he gives. In other words, David says, I'm just a shepherd kid. I'm the youngest of eight boys, David could have said. I was so insignificant in my father's house that when the prophet Samuel came to anoint a king for my family, my daddy didn't even think I need to be in the house. I'm a soldier. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. Who am I that I should be able to give to God like this? To think that God could use my stuff to glorify his name. You see, for David, this is not a moment of painful sacrifice. This is a moment of pleasing satisfaction. Whoever would have thought I could write a check like this and just give it away. I never thought that would come from somebody like me. That's the heart of David here. And over the years, as Melinda and I have given our tithes 
and our offerings to the Lord. I got to tell you, I've often thought of this verse. But who am I? And who are my people that I should be able to give as generously as this? My people, the people I come from, are hardworking, undereducated, over inebriated, barely getting by kind of people. My dad worked for almost four decades in a grain mill. And he never made more than minimum wage. My mother worked hard for years as a cook. First at a hospital. And then a public school where I went to school. And then at a local restaurant. She did catering on the side. I'm the youngest of four children that they raised basically on a poverty level income. They gave us everything they had. And sometimes I just get overwhelmed thinking about the places I've been and the people I've met and the countries I've been privileged to preach the gospel in and the generous salary and benefits that I've been provided through the years. And I think, who am I? Who are my people? That I should be able to do this. That I should be able to receive this. That I should be able to give like this. David goes on in the prayer. Everything comes from you. And we've given you only what has come from your hand. Again, part, part of what is striking here is that David the king is saying this. And when you're king, when you got a lot of stuff, and some of us, Lake County, Apopka Online, some of us have a lot of stuff. And here's what the temptation is. The temptation is to think, if I got a lot of stuff, that means I'm pretty clever. I'm pretty smart. I got a lot of drive. I got a lot of courage. It's because I recognized opportunities when other people didn't recognize. I went to the trouble of getting a good education. I kind of deserve my stuff. <laughs> David is the one who fought Goliath. David led troops into battle. He'd been, he had to learn how to master economics and politics and leadership on the job. He had spent a lifetime of equity into the kingdom. But he says, God, it's your kingdom. It's your majesty. My position and my power and my stuff and my throne and my crown. God, the only reason I have any of them is because of you. And I want to tell you, that's unusually humbling comments that come from a king. I, I love this story about a CEO of a large Fortune 500 company. They're driving along on a road trip together. He's got his wife with him, and they pull into a service station to get some gas, and it's one of those old-school full-service stations, full-service service stations, I guess I should say, where an attendant comes out and puts gas in your tank. And I know you rarely see that happen anymore, but that used to happen. The husband goes inside to use the restroom and he comes back out and he finds his wife engaged in a rather animated conversation with the service station attendant. And he gets in the car and they drive away and he says, what were you two talking about? And she tells him she actually knows this guy. As a matter of fact, he used to be her boyfriend. She used to date him. And the CEO is feeling kind of smug about this. 
And after a while, he says to her, I know what you're thinking, honey. I bet you're thinking you're glad you married me, the Fortune 500 CEO, and not a gas service station attendant. And the wife says, no, actually, I was thinking that if I'd married him, he would have been a Fortune 500 CEO, and you would have been a gas service station attendant. <laughs> Let me tell you, here's something true about us. Here's something true about us. Here it is. When God gives us the capacity to earn, it can quickly become our propensity to take credit. You understand that? When God gives us the capacity to earn, it can quickly become our propensity to take credit. And God knows that about our hearts. So for example, when God is preparing the nation of Israel to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land, look at what he says to them in Deuteronomy chapter eight. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. David messed up in a lot of ways in his life, but he clearly understood this. The only reason I'm sitting where I sit, the only reason I'm wearing this crown, the only reason I'm living in this house, God, is because of you. You have blessed me. And now I want to do everything I can to maximize everything I have for your glory. I want to use my stuff, God, to build your kingdom, not to build my kingdom. Now, we're going to leave David's prayer today. Come back to it next week. And I want to close by telling you about my prayer some specific things I'm praying for for the next 90 days as we prepare the way by excelling in the grace of giving. Four things. Number one, I'm praying for at least 100 new households to start consistently giving at Journey. 100 households that would call Journey their spiritual family, but they've not given yet. That 100 new households would begin their giving journey. Number two, I'm praying that at least 50 households will begin or resume the practice of giving a tithe of their household income at Journey. We're going to talk a little bit more about that next week. Number three, I'm praying that more than 10% of Journey households will make the largest financial gift they've ever given. And number four, I'm praying that the last quarter of 2022 will be the most generous giving quarter in Journey's history. That's what I'm praying for over the next 90 days. And I would like you to join me in praying for this as well. For the next 90 days, I pray we can maximize our opportunities to create a resource reservoir for Pastor Dustin and his staff as he leads us into an exciting new era of ministry at Journey. Now, to help us launch this maximized giving, this is kind of a booster rocket to get us off the ground. I want to share with you, I'm so excited about this, a unique challenge that I'm calling this, a match made for heaven, a match made for heaven. I, here's what, here's at the heart of this. I've asked a core group of some of our most generous giving households at Journey to collectively give a generous amount in matching funds during the last two weeks of October. Today, I am grateful to announce that we have $250,000 in matching funds available for the next two weeks in October. Now, some of you are saying, what are you talking about matching funds? Let me just put it to you simple. In the next two weeks, when you give, every $1 becomes two, every five becomes 10, every 100 becomes 200, every 1,000 becomes 2,000. That's how it works. By the, can you think of a better return on any money right now than that? That, I mean, it would literally double. 
we have the opportunity. I've always wanted to do this. I've always wanted to do this. And with only 90 days left on my lead pastor watch, I want us to go for it and see what God does. We could potentially see $500,000 given in a two-week period if that match is met. That would be the largest two-week offering total in our history. Nothing would please me more as I close out my time as Journey's lead pastor than to hand off to Pastor Dustin the healthiest ministry in every way possible to start his leadership journey as our next lead pastor. So here's what I would ask you to prayerfully consider. Willingly, freely, wholeheartedly, would you do this? Giving the most generous gift you can, specifically during the last two weeks of October, to allow us to maximize those matching funds. Now, before we close, and we will close here, Here's what at least one of you is thinking. I don't know how many of you are thinking this, but at least one of you, Lake County, somebody, one of you out there is thinking this. Online, here's what you're thinking. Here's what you're thinking. Pastor John, have you not been paying attention to what's happening in the economy lately? I mean, inflation is high. Interest rates are soaring. The stock market is down, 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 doobie, 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 down. A recession is near, if not already here. Upcoming elections are stirring fears, not to mention that our state just got hit by an historic hurricane, and now you're asking us to give generously, sacrificially in this economic climate. Did you, like, hit your head or take the wrong medication, Pastor John? <laughs> listen, listen, look at me. I get it. <laughs> I really do. I get it. In fact, let me tell you what I've been doing. I've been checking out my Bible looking for loopholes about giving. <laughs> you know, maybe for a verse it goes like this. And the Lord God saw that the people were in a tough economy and said, you don't have to give anymore. <laughs> or maybe, or maybe something like this. And the Lord said, things are really hard for you right now. So I'm giving you a pass on trusting me. Or maybe at least something like this. Here it is. And you've been through enough. No more tests or trials for you. I've been looking for that. I got to confess, I've been having a hard time finding those verses. If you come across them, would you let me know? Instead, I find verses like this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Go ahead. Next verse. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Those verses are from Hebrews chapter 11. It's called the great faith chapter of the Bible. And in the surrounding verses of Hebrews chapter 11, it tells me some important things about a life of faith. For example, faith is believing when I don't see it. It's obeying when I don't understand it. It's persisting when I don't feel like it. It's giving when I don't have it. It's thanking God before I receive it. And it's trusting God if I don't get it. That's what faith is. Now listen, there's basically two questions we can leave here asking today. The first question is this, how can we possibly do this? Or we can ask, who is willing to consecrate themselves to the Lord? I don't know about you, but I choose the latter because an old 
West Texas pastor once said, you never know what lies on the other side of obedience. You never know what lies on the other side of obedience. I don't know about you. I want to find out. How about you? Let's stand together right now. Let's stand. Lake County, would you stand with me? Father, I, I thank you just for the opportunity to just share once again the wonderful people at Journey Christian Church in Apopka and Lake County and our online community. Father, I'm just in awe of what you're doing and what you will do. And I am praying, Lord, those specific things. There are going to be a hundred, at least a hundred households that haven't given their first gift to Journey. They're going to do that. There's going to be at least 50 households that are going to start or resume the practice of tithing of their income. And there's going to be 10% of our households that are going to give the gener most generous gift they've ever given. And that the last quarter of 2022 will be the most generous giving quarter in the history of Journey Christian Church. Father, I pray that. And I pray that not to, for anything to protect my fading glory. I pray we do it to promote your forever glory. Yours, oh Lord, is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And we pray this and thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.